St. James. Glad that you guys are here. Welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. Glad that you guys are here as well. Let me go over a couple announcements real quick here. You can look at the schedule. Uh, everything's back on for today. Youth confirmation until 1245. Um, Sunday evening prayer at 530. We come here and we just uh, hang out and it's super casual. We pray for each other and pray for the church. Uh, you're more than welcome to join us then. Men's Bible study Tuesday morning 630. Women's Bible study Saturday morning at 9 o'clock. Um, next Sunday, we're going to have, so a couple of weeks ago, Catherine and Josiah Lang, they're doing mission, but they're doing two separate missions. One, uh, Catherine is doing a college ministry. Uh, Josiah is going down to the Honduras this summer. But they talked about their uh, upcoming mission, and we're going to do a door offering after church next Sunday and then split it between the brother and sister to support them in their ministries uh, coming up. So be ready for that next Sunday. Um, can I, can I do a real quick PSA? And I'm, sc I'm scared to death to do this because uh, I realize that feelings are high about these sorts of things. Angel and I uh, tried to eat uh, dinner at a restaurant on Thursday night with some friends. And uh, the uh, restaurant was shut down because everybody there had COVID. And it was just a reminder that God was really good to us um, the first round of COVID. Uh, we didn't have, it was, so we had some people who got sick and Chuck had a real hard go of it. We didn't lose anybody. And, and, and I know that this, this round of COVID uh, seems to be less dangerous than the old one, but we are having way more incidences of COVID here at church. I'm not saying happening here at church, but a lot of us are struggling. We were missing some people this morning who have it. And so just be, uh, just be safe. And if you have any symptoms, um, that's why we do the live stream. You can worship at home and, and, and be careful as well. Whatever that means, uh, be careful with that as well. So uh, just, just a thought, and don't get angry with me. I was uh, just trying to, to love you. And if I'm an idiot, and that's the wrong way to love you, you'll be gracious with me anyway, I know. And love me back in my idiocy. So, okay. Um, I think that's it for announcements. Let's go ahead and stand. And let me pray for us, and then we'll jump into the service. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving loving us and being good to us, and thank you for caring for us and uh, watching over our church and watching over our families. And uh, we come to you this morning with uh, uh, definitely with things that we're ashamed of, and uh, maybe some of us with things that we feel guilty for. All of us, though, with parts of our lives that are empty, not living up to what we want to be um, as friends or as workers or as students. And we just need you, Father. We need you to give us meaning and purpose. We need some sort of anchor to show us and to let us know that there is ultimate value outside of the things that we do. And so we've come here this morning for, to, to ask you to give us yourself. We need you, and we need you to give us uh, this morning not just directions and not just information, but to give us an experience of yourself through your word and through your sacrament and the praises that we're going to sing to you. 
Do this for your own name's sake, but do it for our good as well. We pray this in the name of our brother Jesus. Amen. Let's continue in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I've sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty... I confess to God Almighty before the whole company of heaven and to you, my brothers and sisters, that I have sinned in thought, word, and deed by my fault, by my own fault, by my own most grievous fault. Wherefore, I pray God Almighty to have mercy on me, forgive me all my sins, and bring me to everlasting life. Amen. The Almighty and merciful Lord grant you pardon forgiveness, and remission of all your sins. Amen. Please stay standing for the opening hymn. Psalm reading is from Psalm 119, which Psalm 119 is, is all about God's word. Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. Hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your just decrees, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. The epistle reading is from Ephesians 1. And let me point this out to you. I've pointed this out to you before, but let me do it one more time. Paul puts a little code in here to mark out three individual sections in this reading. It's right at the beginning of his letter to the Ephesians. And he's, it's this, this like wonderful vision of God's goodness and his beauty and his purposes in saving us. 
but he marks out three separate sections in this reading, and he does it with this code in verse 6, to the praise of his glorious grace. He's going to repeat that three times, a variation of that three times in here, to the praise of his glorious grace, then down at the end of verse 12, last line, to the praise of his glory, then the last line in verse 13, to the praise of his glory. And so why does he put to the praise of his glory some version of that three times? Well, it marks out three sections here, and each one of these three sections highlights the work of each individual member of the Trinity in saving us. The first section is about the predestination of the Father. The second section is the redemption worked for us by the Son. And then the third section is the guarantee of that salvation by the Holy Spirit. So as we go through here, when we get to that marker, you'll notice that we shift from focusing on the Father to focusing on Jesus to focusing on the Spirit. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Even as he, the Father, chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, shift to focus on Jesus, with which he has blessed us in the beloved, that's Jesus. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace, which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight, making known to us the mystery of his will, according to his purpose, which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him, in Jesus, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we, who were the first to hope in Christ, might be to the praise of his glory. That's the second marker. Now shift to focus on the Spirit. In him, in Jesus, you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Luke, chapter 2. Glory to you, O Lord. The child Jesus grew and became strong, filled with wisdom, and the favor of God was upon him. Now his parents went to Jerusalem every year at the feast of the Passover. And when he was 12 years old, they went up according to custom. And when the feast was ended, as they were returning, the boy Jesus stayed behind in Jerusalem. His parents didn't know it, but supposing him to be in the group, they went a day's journey But then they began to search for him among their relatives and acquaintances. And when they didn't find him, they returned to Jerusalem searching for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting among the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were amazed at his understanding and his answers. And when his parents saw him, they were astonished. And his mother said to him, Son, why have you treated us so? Behold, your father and I have been searching for you in great distress. And he said to them, Why were you looking for me? Didn't you know that I must be in my father's house? And they didn't understand the saying that he spoke to them. And he went down with them and came to Nazareth and was submissive to them. And his mother treasured up all these things in her heart. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Please stay standing for the sermon hymn. deep I call when my hope is shaken and torn down ruin from the fall hear my desperation for so long I've fled and prayed God come to my rescue even so the thorn remains still my heart will pray
sermon text is Esther 1, because we are going to spend the next nine weeks reading through Esther, and um, we're going to do a chapter a week, so I'm going to read chapter 1 to us. Now in the days of Ahasuerus, uh, this is the Ahasuerus who reigned from India to Ethiopia over 127 provinces. This is the kingdom of Persia here. In those days when King Ahasuerus sat on his royal throne in Susa, the citadel, In the third year of his reign, he gave a feast for all his officials and servants. The army of Persia and Media and the nobles and governors of the provinces were before him, while he showed the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness for many days, 180 days. And when these days were completed, that's a long party, and when these days were completed, the king gave for all the people present in Susa the citadel, both great and small, a feast lasting for seven days. So the first feast is just for the the VIPs. This feast is for everyone in the city, a uh, seven-day party. In the court of the garden of the king's palace, there were white cotton curtains and violet hangings fastened with cords of fine linen and purple to silver rods and marble pillars and also couches of gold and silver on a mosaic pavement of porphyry, marble, mother of pearl, and precious stones. Drinks were served in golden vessels, vessels of different kinds, and the royal wine was lavished according to the bounty of the king. And drinking was according to this edict. There is no compulsion. For the king had given orders to all the staff of his palace to do as each man desired. It's a reference to an ancient custom uh, in parties where you would be permitted to take a drink at the party when the king took a drink. And whenever the king drank, you would be required to drink. And when the king didn't drink, you wouldn't be allowed to drink. And Ahasuerus is saying we're dispensing with that rule for this party. People can drink however much or however little they want. Queen Vashti, verse 9, also gave a feast for the women in the palace that belonged to King Ahasuerus. On the seventh day, when the heart of the king was merry with wine, he commanded Mahuman, Bistha, Harbona, Bigtha, and Abagtha, Zethar, and Carcass, the seven eunuchs who served in the presence of King Ahasuerus, to bring Queen Vashti before the king with her royal crown in order to show the peoples and the princess her beauty, for she was lovely to look at. But Queen Vashti refused to come at at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Then the king said to the wise men who knew the times, for this was the king's procedure toward all who were versed in law and judgment, the men next to him being Karshena, Shethar, Edmatha, Tarshish, Maris, Marcina, and Mamukin, the seven princes of Persia and Media, who saw the king's face and sat first in the kingdom. According to the law, what is to be, this is the question he asked, according to the law, what is to be done to Queen Vashti? because she has not performed the command of King Ahasuerus delivered by the eunuchs. Then Mamukin said in the presence of the king and the officials, not only against the king has Queen Vashti done wrong, but against all the officials and all the peoples who are in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus. For the queen's behavior will be made known to all women, causing them to look at their husbands with contempt, since they'll say, King Ahasuerus commanded Queen Vashti to be brought before him, and she didn't come. This very day, the noble women of Persia and Media who have heard of the queen's behavior will say the same to all the king's officials, and there will be contempt and wrath in plenty. If it please the king, let a royal order go out from him, 
And let it be written among the laws of the Persian and the Medes, Persians and the Medes, so that it may not be repealed, that Vashti is never again to come before King Ahasuerus. And let the king give her royal position to another who is better than she. So when the decree made by the king is proclaimed throughout all his kingdom, for it is vast, all women will give honor to their husbands, high and low alike. This advice pleased the king and the princess, and the king did as Mamukin proposed. He sent letters to all the royal provinces, to every province in its own script, and to every people in its own language, that every man be master in his own household and speak according to the language of his people. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. All right, let's talk about Esther for a few minutes. And this is going to be weird. I'm going to um, uh, introduce the book of Esther to you. So it's not going to have a super sermon-y vibe. Also, uh, uh, I'm going to try to explain what, what's going on in uh, chapter 1, which is basically setting up the story uh, for, the rest of the, uh, for, the, for the rest of the 10 chapters. And let me start. I know, I know that this, this turns some of you on, and it doesn't, some of you don't care. But, but I have to do this because some of you do care, and you're going to study, you're going to look up stuff on Wikipedia. And I just kind of want to know, I, I want you kind of to know where I'm at on this topic. The question of, did this story really happen, the story of Esther? And uh, some of you are like, who cares? It's in the Bible. God said it. I believe it. And some of you are like, um, and this, this is more down my alley, is like, well, I want to know. Like, is this a fictional story that's designed to encourage us, or do, is this really history? Um, different people say different things, of course. A lot of people will say that this is not historical, that this is, uh, that this is a fictional story. And the, the main reason why they would say this and if you look online, just in general online, depending on who you look at, if somebody says, I think that Esther was just fiction, and, you know, it's got a morality to it, and it's got like, lessons and directions, but it didn't really happen, it's a fictional story. One of the main reasons why they're going to say that is because we don't have any records from, from the Persian records, which we do have, uh, at least some of, we don't have any records of anybody named Esther or Mordecai who were people of importance during the reign of the Persian king Xerxes or Ahasuerus. Uh, it was the same person, different, different uh, language, uh, different names for him in different languages. And so what are we going to do with that? And I just want to make a real quick comment about that, and I know that this is not edifying. Feel free to grab your phone and uh, go through social media or read the paper while I do this, and I'll let you know when the boring historical defense of the history of Esther is over. Let me, let me address that just real quick. Um, first of all, it's not surprising that the records of the kings of Persia might not mention every single person related to Ahasuerus, especially women. Uh, we're going to see here a little bit this week, but mainly next week, that Ahasuerus, like all, like all kings in the ancient world, uh, had a government-sponsored building in his city where he collected women. He would take women and he would store them there, and then he would go through them and choose which ones to have sex with whenever he wanted. It was his harem that he would pick one woman out of that harem and put mention of her in the records is, would be surprising. Now, I know that Esther describes her as the Queen Esther. And in a sense, she was. His main queen, Vashti, which we do know about from records, he has a tiff with her in the book, and he decides to dispense with her for a little bit. She does not go away. She's incredibly important. If the Persian records are right, she bounces back. He takes her back into his good graces. She is going to be the queen, the ultimate queen. There's no... I mean, he can pick a favorite girl from his harem, like Esther, to replace her temporarily. But she is the woman, Bashti is the woman who's been chosen to be the mother of his legitimate children. And no, no other of his children who are born to him are allowed to ascend to the throne like Artaxerxes, Bashti's son. After, in fact, after Ahasuerus dies, Bashti becomes even more important. She becomes the queen mother, and she's mentioned even more regularly in Persian records. It's not surprising that, that Esther does not get mentioned. She's a member of his harem. He's very favorable to her, at least over the scope of the story. She kind of rises in favor. She performs a certain role in defending the people of Israel. But it's not surprising that we wouldn't have records of her. Let, let, let me give you some, some pros why we should, some good reasons to think of this as basically telling history as it happened. I'll give you some good reasons. One is that, and I don't want to, this is really, this is, if, if I would tell you what I want to tell you right now in my, all of my nerddom, it would be so, it would, this would be super boring. The language that the book of Esther is written in is Hebrew, but it's newer Hebrew. In fact, Esther is probably, 
We're not quite sure, but Esther, I know if, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, Esther's kind of smack dab in the middle. Esther might be the last book written. The events that it describes are some of the latest events in the book of, uh, in, in the Old Testament. It describes the Persian conquest. Um, history of Israel in 10 seconds. King David rules about 1000 BC. Israel is exiled by the Assyrian Empire in around 700 BC. Judah is exiled by the Babylonians around 600 BC. The stories that are told here in the Esther happen around 550, between 550 and 580 BC. Esther, if the language is right, Esther's probably written about a generation after that, sometime in the early 400s. One of the last books of the Old Testament written. What do I mean by language? Well, you know how language changes, right? If, if you hear, if you pick up a piece of literature and you notice a bunch of these and thous in it, and, and verbs ending in th, you're going to tell yourself this was not written in the 1980s, right? I mean, we just know language changes, and you can kind of tell when things are written based upon. If, if you, you know, if you, for those of you who are pop culturally pop culturey people, you can tell by the slang sometimes within five years when something's been written or when something's popular. Um, Hebrew language is like that as well. And the language that's used here is from the Persian period. It was written during the Persian period. And some, I, could, I could nerd out on you, but like some, one of the ways is the way, dates are, the way dates are phrased. There's a specific way the Persians did it. Whoever did this is almost certainly a Jew living in Persia, a Farsi Jew, who has written this within a generation. Okay, so why does that matter? Why, why, why does that matter? Here's why. It's because there are two ways that legends get born. One way is if somebody just intentionally makes up a legend, like Paul Bunyan. Somebody just said, I'm going to tell, a, fun, I'm gonna, I'm gonna tell a, a story about somebody. And everybody knows from the beginning that Paul Bunyan is legend. Everybody, nobody doubts that. The other way is to describe events that nobody knows happened from maybe 500 years ago. Then you can create stories about them, and nobody can really check it. However... If you tell stories about stuff that's happened within people's living memory, they will fact check you on that, all right? So if somebody, if somebody wrote this within a generation of it happening, which from the language we know is most likely, they're probably not going to be able to make up things. Look, if I, if I stood up here and I told you I'm, I'm, Woodrow Wilson did not exist, you would say, that's not true. There are people who are still alive at least a few people now, who remember Woodrow Wilson. You can't make that up. Maybe 500 years from now, you could say, oh, there was this president that's made up and he got his name in certain history books people did, whatever. You can make that, maybe if you had a half a millennia, but not a generation. That's too early. If somebody's writing this story and saying it, it's in the generation, they're going to get fact-checked on it. That's one reason that we know that it's true. There's a couple other reasons, too. There's actually in Persia today, in the city of Hamadan, a tomb to Esther and Mordecai that's been there for thousands of years. Nobody knows exactly when it was built, but it's been there for records of it for a thousand years. Is it possible to build a fake tomb to somebody? I guess so, if you were really desperate to spend a lot of money. If you see this, it's not just like a headstone. It's like this big, massive building. I guess so, but it's weird. It's weird if it's, it's weird. That would be a weird thing to do, to make a point. Here's, here's the third reason why we should take this seriously as basically history is that um, when we get to chapter 10, you'll see that the whole, one of the main purposes of Esther is to describe how we got the festival of Purim. It's a Jewish festival. It's celebrated every year by Jews. It's usually in the middle of March. Uh, so a couple weeks after we're done with the sermon series, we'll, uh, Jews all over the world will celebrate the festival of Purim. Purim is the festival where they celebrate God delivering the Jews through the hand of Esther and Mordecai. Let me tell you how festivals get started. Historical events of importance happen, and then people make up festivals to go with them. So this is heavily researched. I know this is from the Wikipedia page. I can't remember. It's either King Ahasuerus or Esther or the Book of Esther or something like that. This is a direct quote from the Wikipedia page. There is no reference to no known historical events in the story. The narrative of Esther was invented to provide an etiology for Purim. Okay, let me tell you what that means means the book of Esther was invented in order to, prov to provide an explanation for how we got the Purim festival, right? That's not how festivals work. The events happen, and then we create a festival. 
look, it would be like if, you know, 2,000 years from now, I look back upon America and say, every 4th of July, they got together to celebrate fireworks. Somebody invented a story about the American Revolution in order to explain why every year they like to get together on the 4th of July and watch fireworks and eat, eat, eat barbecue. The story was a, a legend to explain the festival. That's not how festivals work. Festivals are created to, to, to live out and embody and personify and to encapsulate annually in collective memory events that happened that were important. We celebrate 4th of July because events happened. And almost all festivals happen like that. You know, we don't celebrate our kid's birthday and we don't, we, we don't think that we made up, invented our kids in order to celebrate their birthday. The birthday happens because the kids were born. Purim happened. Purim has been celebrated for uh, two and a half thousand years. If it didn't happen because of this, then why, what does Purim mean? Why do they celebrate it? What does it mean? It, it, makes, it just makes more historical sense that the event happened and then the festival came later. Okay, thus ends of the boringness. I just said that, and that's pro probably not true. The rest of it's going to be boring as well. But you be nice to me and pretend like it's interesting while I go through this. Okay, so we're going to take Esther at face value as if it is telling us events that happened. Esther, though, although it's history, is definitely literature. It's a beautiful story. In fact, Esther is one of the only stories in the Bible, but for those of you who are familiar with it, you'll, you'll realize, as soon as I say it, you'll realize this. Esther's one of the only books of the Bible that's just one complete story, all right? Think about like uh, Genesis. It's one story too, but it's made up of a bunch of episodes with different people and different characters. It's more of a novel. You know, novels are longer extended stories that have multiple scenes, multiple characters, multiple times. Um, first and second Samuel, there's multiple main characters. There's Samuel, then there's Saul, then there's David, etc. Esther tells about one event that's kind of locked into a narrow time period. It's just one short story is what it is. And so what I'd like to do over the next few weeks is I'd like to encourage you to read this with me. Okay, I'm going to read one chapter in here just because that's what we have time for. But it wasn't meant to be read chapter by chapter. It was meant to be read in one sitting. And you could knock it out honestly in a half hour. It's, not, it's, it's a short story. Do me a favor. Do yourself a favor, actually. Sometime while we're going through this over the next couple months, Read Esther in one sitting. Read Esther in one sitting and catch the ebbs and flows. I'm going to be pointing out to you different literary devices. One of the main ones is reversal. There's, um, it's almost burlesque. There's one scholar who calls it burlesque because there's almost comic reversals. Things will happen and everybody knows how it's going to go and then the next minute the script is flipped. Actually, there's one phrase. I didn't do this for the first service. I'll do it for you guys though. There's kind of a, uh, uh, there's a, a, th there's a theme verse uh, chapter 9, verse 1, it says, on the day when the Jews were going to get destroyed, the reverse occurred. And that's kind of a theme that happens in Esther, is like, everybody thinks the story's going one way, and then it twists. And you really capture that if you just read it all at one sitting. It's a story about Esther, of course. She's the main character. And it's about what, what God does to her. But it's not just about Esther, it's about the Jews. God using Esther to deliver a whole group of people. But it's not just about the Jews, it's about the story of the Bible, and as, uh, what I want to show you over the next few months is that the story of Esther is a description. It's a microcosm of the way that God deals with the world, the way that God rescues his people consistently throughout human history, through the power of the cross, ultimately at the end of time. And so Esther is important. But I'm going to talk for, for a minute now, and then we'll be done. This is my last big point here. Why specifically Esther? What makes Esther so important for us to read now? And let me do it this way. If you live in a world without God, if you live in a world post-God, and by all accounts, we live in a world like that. Now, I know like in, in Christian bubble, LCMS bubble, we're like, oh, no, no, we all believe in God. But largely, I mean, even those of us who are like devout Christians tend to be basically deist. We typically tend to be people, we believe in a God but we don't necessarily believe that God is active and involved. and We're not looking for him. You, know, you, you don't wake up in the morning thinking what God is doing in, in, in our lives today. I know some of you do, and, and, and like, it's, a, it's a gift of God. It's a gift of the Holy Spirit that you're like that. Most of us don't, though. We might believe in a deity, but most of us live in a post-God world. Even Christians do, but especially non-Christians. We live in a world where God is not necessary, where all that really exists is matter, and in a world like that, it's not the first time that it's, I'm not here to say, oh, it's horrible, let's, let's try and turn the page. You can't turn the page. 
a cultural drift. You and I have no power. We're, we're, actually, we're actually working for the enemy sometimes. But how do you live life as a Christian in a world where God is not the ultimate authority? Where human self-sovereignty is the ultimate authority? Esther answers that brilliantly. It's maybe the best story in the Bible for grappling with that. Let me show you why. In a place where God is not worshipped, in a place where God does not exist, there will be other gods that fill the vacuum. It is inevitable. You will worship something. You were made to worship. You were made to find ultimate meaning and purpose in something outside of yourself. Now, it might be something that you can co-opt and participate in, but every human being either finds purpose, looks for purpose in something outside of themselves, or despairs. That's your only two choice. Nihilism or worship. And nihilism is its own version of worship too, which I don't get into that. It's not the point of the sermon. What happens when you live in a world that's post-God? Well, I'll give you an example. This is, uh, you've heard me say this a gazillion times. I'll say it again. That if you don't worship the one true God, you will worship one of the gods on offer culturally. And whether it's in the days of Esther or whether it's right now, those gods will tend to fall along three lines. Sex, money, and power. These are the three idols that humans latch onto in order to find meaning and fulfillment, in order to find purpose, in order to, to, in order to look themselves in the mirror and say, you, Aaron Miller, are worth something. I will tend to turn, outside of the Creator God and Jesus Christ, I will tend to turn towards money, sex, or power. And that's the story that we find in the first chapter of Esther. In a world without God, there are false gods being made. And Ahasuerus is indulging in these false gods. So, for instance, uh, sex. Now, this is not in our reading for this week. It's in the very, very next verses in chapter 2. And we'll get to them next Sunday. But let me give you a little foretaste of them now. After these things, so Ahasuerus is mad at Vashti. By the way, this is a sexual thing too. Ahasuerus wants to parade Vashti. Ahasuerus gets drunk and thinks, I'm going to parade my wife in front of everybody so people can see the kind of woman that this man gets. That's what it is. Vashti calls him on it too. So why Vashti? It's not just like come to the next room. I don't feel like coming to the next room. It's I refuse to be paraded in front of other human beings. By the way, I said, so we, Vashti is kind of a, a spitfire. And uh, in many ways, a woman much to be admired. Uh, we know about her from Herodotus, for instance. I'll give you a little uh, sample story that kind of feels like this. Vashti knows about the harem, of course. It's got a mailing address. You can drive, drive down the street and see the harem there. She knows what her husband does. She doesn't like it any more than any self-respecting individual would like their partner sleeping around. At one point, she gets extremely angry with one of Ahasuerus' mistresses, which lives in the harem, because Ahasuerus really likes her. And Vashti goes and mutilates her mother, the rival's mother. And Ahasuerus gets mad and kicks her away for a little bit, and then she comes back. And It's kind of a common story. But this is why... This is why uh, Vashti is angry because I refuse to be paraded sexually in front of your friends. I, re I refuse to be your trophy. Ahasuerus gets mad and decides, fine, I'll get a different trophy. Chapter 2, verses 1 through 4. After these things, when the anger of King Ahasuerus had abated, he remembered Vashti and what she had done and what had been decreed against her. Then the king's young men who attended him said, let beautiful young virgins be sought out for the king. Let the king appoint officers in all the provinces of his kingdom to gather all the beautiful young virgins to the harem in Susa the citadel, under custody of Haggai, the king's eunuch, who is in charge of the women. Let their cosmetics be given them. And let the young woman who pleases the king be queen instead of Vashti. This pleased the king. Of course it pleased the king. And he did so. So let's get all, these, all the beautiful virgins that we find. Let's put them in your harem. You have sex with all of them. The one that you like the most, we'll call her the new queen. And Ahasuerus does it. Ahasuerus, this is a, a um, well, we'll, well, I'm going to come back uh, in next week and the week after that to Esther's role in this and what that must have meant to a woman to be taken out of your home and put into the harem of somebody who's going to use you in order to flex, in order to, uh, in order to, to, to give himself God-like vibes. But this is definitely what Ahasuerus is doing. He's got power, and he's going to use that power to gratify it. He's going to find meaning with his power through sex. Also money. I'm not going to read verses 2 through 8 again, but you got the gist of it, right? He throws this massive party for all the people who work for him. And the party is one huge flex. You show up, it's couches of gold, all the fancy trimmings, all the food that you could eat, 
uh, mother of pearl floors, all the wine that you can drink. This is a way of saying, I am rich, and I will use that money to benefit you if you're on my side. This is definitely money as a way to get meaning. Sex, money, but also just power in general. Why do you think in verse, uh, verse 12, Queen Vashti refused to come at the king's command delivered by the eunuchs. At this the king became enraged and his anger burned within him. Why is the king so angry? Why is he so angry at her? The reason why is this. It's the reason why when you're most determined that your kids obey you and they don't, that's when you get the angriest. It's the reason why when you're most convinced that at work that my idea for this project is the right one and it gets turned down, that's when you get the angriest. It's because whenever your God is power, oh, let me, let me, say, let me back up, let me say it this way. There's, there's such a thing as righteous anger. Anger at wrongdoing. But typically when we humans are angry, it's a symptom of an idol that's been challenged. Anger is typically a symptom of an idol that's been challenged. Look, and check yourself. I don't, I, you know, wherever you're at, I, I know what my own issues are. But f- when you find yourself losing your temper, when you find yourself angry, look back behind that anger and see, where is it that I'm determined to get my way? Or where has my money been challenged? Or where has my attractiveness been challenged? That's when we get most angry. And that's why he's angry. Why? Because his power's been challenged. He's just thrown this massive... But by the way, he is the king of the most powerful empire in the history of the world at this time. It is no lie. From India to Libya, that's how far the Persian, the, the, the Achaemenid Empire stretches at the time of Ahasuerus. In a universe with no sort of like electronic communication, no modern road system, no quick transportation, he's built an empire that stretches from India to North Africa. That's how powerful he is. And a woman says to him, I don't want to do what you want me to do. And he's furious. Why? Because his idol of power has been challenged by his wife. That's why he gets angry. It's no different than the, this is no different than the way the world works now, right? Sex, power, and money. That's the name of the game. I don't know how many of you uh, have the guts to pay attention to the whole Jeffrey Epstein uh, trial of his girlfriend, whatever, going on. But you know, one of the horrific things about that, that's kind of a subtext, and if you read about that trial, is there are people in power whose names are just a little bit away from getting exposed if somebody in that trial says the wrong thing. And it, it, maybe not all of our politicians, maybe not all of our Wall Street executives, maybe not everybody in the corporate world, maybe not every famous pastor is a pedophile, but is anybody surprised when anybody in that group, anybody with power, is collecting women on the side? Nobody's surprised, because that's what men do when you give them power. They collect women. That's the way it always has been. It's the way it is now. I mean, so before, new, before the new journalist got going in the 1960s, uh, it was just sort of, an, in journalism, it was just, it was an accepted practice that you kept the indiscretions of the president uh, hidden out of public view. It's not until JFK and in the presidents that followed that we're aware of what, the, the way that many presidents live their lives. And so, harems are no different. I mean, there's no building in Washington, D.C. that the taxpayer is paying for, probably, to house the president's mistresses, but they still happen because sex is the way that we make ourselves godlike, that we identify with divinity, that we get purpose. By the way, check out the language in verse uh, 3 and no, verse 4. At this party, Ahasuerus shows the riches of his royal glory and the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Well, this is actually God language. This is who, who is supposed to have royal glory? Nobody but God. Ahasuerus is determined to show his royal glory, and the way he does it is with sex, money, and power. Well, money is the same way, right? Money is, this is the number one God of the American dream. Money is the number one cause of divorce in our culture. Money is the number one cause of crime. Money is what we use to justify all kinds of evil things in ways that people say, well, just financially, we can't actually do what what would be right. And everybody goes, oh, okay, I get it. One extreme example is, um, um, you guys have heard this growing up in school, in the antebellum South, there were people in the South who owned slaves who thought it was morally reprehensible to own slaves. Thomas Jefferson was one. He was a person who talked about the evils of slavery. He himself owned slaves. And the reason why is if we abolish slavery, the economic system of the South would collapse. It was just, that was just the way people thought about it. So here you have, you have a great moral evil, humans owning other human beings. Here you have economics. And people just say out loud, which one's more important? Money has to rule. That's the way we as humans think. Money is a God. And power as well. More harm has been done 
in our culture and any culture with the lie that we should be free to do what we want than by any other lie that we tell ourselves. The lie that you should be free, that I should be free to do as I please, that I should follow my heart, that lie is responsible for more damage, more relationship damage, more economic damage, more personal damage than any other lie that we could tell ourselves. You and I are no different. We live in a world that's no different than the world that Ahasuerus lived in, where the only gods are money, sex, and power. And the one who has the most money, the one who has the most power, the one who has the most sex, Ahasuerus, is the god. That's the world that he lived in. Now, so what I'm saying is this. Esther is good for us to read because it's a world like our world. There are three stories. Let me, let me give you 30 seconds to think. No, that's too long. There are three stories in the Old Testament that describe one of God's people thrust into an environment where God doesn't exist. And money, sex, and power are the only coin of the realm. Three stories in the Old Testament. Can you think of them? Just real quickly. I can't give you too much time because it's boring enough without me just standing up here looking at you for a few seconds. Joseph, Joseph is all by himself in a pagan, the most powerful empire in the world of Joseph's day was Egypt, right? Daniel, most powerful world of Daniel's day. Daniel lived probably about 100 years before um, Esther and Mordecai. Most powerful empire of his day, Babylon. Daniel finds himself living in in the godless environment of Babylon. And then Esther, Esther. And in all three of those instances, God used Daniel, Esther, and Joseph to accomplish great threats great things, working within that environment, working within the pagan environment, even converting, evangelizing within the pagan environment. So Esther can help us because all three of these are contexts that look like ours. But now somebody might be saying this. Okay, so what we need then, thinking about these stories, what we need then is some sort of like miraculous, powerful event, like a Daniel and the lion's den event from the book of Daniel or the fiery furnace event, right? Or we need some sort of like supernatural, one of us needs to get like this dream, this message from God like Joseph gets and like Daniel gets or like even Nebuchadnezzar gets. And let me say this, that would be terrific. That's why the stories of Daniel and Joseph are in the Bible because God sometimes does that. But let's imagine that you're living in a world, your own personal world, where you live in an environment, the United States of America, where sex, money, and power are the only ultimate values. And you want to live as a member of the colony of the new creation in the name of Jesus in that environment. But no miracles are coming for you and you're not getting any visions. What do you do? The story of Esther is the story for you. And let me tell you why. The story of Esther has a lot in common with the story of Daniel and the story of Joseph, but it has one big difference. Daniel and Joseph have miracles, they have visions. Let me tell you something about the book of Esther that maybe maybe you've never known. The Bible doesn't get mentioned one time in the book of Esther. The temple doesn't get mentioned one time. No miracles happen. She receives no visions. She performs no mighty deeds. Instead, as you'll see in the weeks to come, it's just a choreography, I use that word intentionally, a choreography of weird coincidences that God uses. It's probably even too strong to say God, even though it's true. It's true. Do you know why? Do do you guys know this? I'm going to encourage you. When you sit down this week and you read Esther in one sitting, look for a mention of God. Look for the times that God is mentioned. When his name is mentioned, or even when the divine is referred to. Are you guys aware of this? Not one time in the book of Esther does God get mentioned. It's the only book of the Bible where God is not even brought up. In fact, a lot of conservative scholars, Martin Luther was one of them, who said, I don't even know if this should be in the Bible because God's not even in this book. But but do you you know why? It's 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 a bad misunderstanding of the way literature works. Do you know why the author of Esther did not include the name of God? Because that's the context that Esther was living in. In a context where it looks like God isn't present, He is most present. And I don't want to unpack that too much because we'll see that throughout Esther's life. God, I'm going to use this phrase over and over here. God, God's sovereignty is sometimes stealth. He doesn't always show his face. He doesn't always look like he's there. Don't be disturbed by the fact that God's not mentioned because you live in a world where God is frequently not mentioned and yet he is still there choreographing the coincidences for his own glory. He's going to rescue his people, and he's going to do it 
through an apparent absence. Don't, again, don't be disturbed. This is the way that God works. What's the most God event? What's the one event in the history of the universe where God is most clearly present and active and working? Is it not the crucifixion of God in flesh? And is it not at that moment that God himself is saying, God, where are you at? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That's a prayer that Esther could pray. It's a prayer that any of you could pray. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Let me encourage you that by the power of the cross of Jesus Christ, by the power of his resurrection, he is choreographing the coincidences of your life to work out his plan, to make himself glorious, and as we see at the end of Esther, to convert the pagans to him. That's what he's promising to do, and that's what we're going to get when we study the book of Esther for the next few weeks. Okay, let's stand and let's pray, and we're going to have communion together. Let's pray. God, thank you for loving us, and thank you for being good to us. Uh, We confess that we don't often see your hand active, Lord, but we know it's there, and when we study your word, we see it's there. As we read about your servant Esther and what you've accomplished through her, Father, may you teach us to see the power of your stealth, sovereign hand in our lives. And sometimes it's not stealth, God. Sometimes it's so clear that you're active. It's miracles that you do, the things that you say to us, the conversations that we have where it's just plain that you're there. God, help us not to box you into that, though. Help us to believe and understand that you are active and working and in control even when we don't see you. Lord, in your mercy. Father, would you be with all of your churches, with with your entire church here on earth, and in glory too, would you be with, especially we want to pray this morning for our sister LCMS churches. We'd like to pray for uh, Pastor Schultz and uh, our brothers and sisters at St. Paul and Wood River. And would you bless them as your word is preached and as they receive your sacrament and as um, they pray to you and as they sing praises to you. Would you sanctify them, Father? Would you draw unbelievers to yourself there? And again, as we pray every week together, would you be with every one of your churches here in this area? We really want to see Glenn Carbon be converted completely to you. We want Glenn Carbon to be a bastion of your kingdom, a huge colony of your new creation. Will you do that, Father? Will you draw all people to yourself? May the cross of your son Jesus Christ be the de facto symbol of our town. May St. James be a burning blaze of light that you can use to make that happen. We want to see you do that, God. Glorify yourself in that way. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray this morning for everybody who's struggling with physical sicknesses and disease and weaknesses, with mental struggles, relational struggles. Father, you know who they are. You know who's going through the kind of situations that Esther and Mordecai went through. Fear, confusion, sometimes despair, wondering where you're at. God, would you meet us? Would you meet all of us where we're at? And convince us that the power of your son's resurrection is the power that we need to heal all of our sicknesses, all of our diseases, all of our brokennesses. Lord, in your mercy. We can only pray these things because you have invited us into your throne room. You've united us to your son, Jesus. You've called us your daughters and your sons. And so we pray these names, we pray these prayers in the name of our brother, Jesus. Amen. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Nicene Creed. It's in your bulletin. I believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and of all things visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the only begotten Son of God, begotten of his Father before all worlds, God of God, light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate by the Holy Spirit of the Virgin Mary and was made man and was crucified also for us under Pontius Pilate. He suffered and was buried. And the third day he rose again according to the Scriptures and ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the Father. And he will come again with glory to judge both the living and the dead whose kingdom will have no end. And I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord and giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son together is worshipped and glorified, who spoke by the prophets. And I believe in one holy Christian and apostolic church. I acknowledge one baptism for the remission of sins, and I look for the resurrection of the dead 
in the life of the world to come. Amen. And now let's pray together in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, Take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper. And when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated.
And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Lord, now let your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared before the face of all people, to be a light to lighten the Gentiles, and to be the glory of your people Israel. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. bless you and keep you. Lord, make his face shine on you and be gracious unto you. Lord, lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around and find somebody that you haven't seen in a while and start a conversation with them. Go in peace.